Thank you. You guys can be seated. Now, I just want to echo what Pastor Mark was saying uh, about Pastors Chuck and Karen Pellin. When I talked to him Saturday, he called me yesterday. He was like, man, greet the people for me. I so bad want to be there this morning, but there's, there's an assignment on my life, as, as Pastor Mark shared. So we bless him uh, with their time in Tennessee. They'll be back later this week. So we bless them health, wholeness, rest. Rest is a big one. In Jesus' name. So before I get started, I always like to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, you know, my wife was, was telling me, you know, she's getting ready, getting prepared, getting psyched for the upcoming Christmas season and the decoration that, that takes place with all that. And I know, I mean, the ladies in this house, some of them, I guess, are super jacked about that. But it reminded me of uh, something that I heard um, there are three things that just don't hang themselves. Christmas ornaments, drywall, and Jeffrey Epstein. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry. That's, he's your friend. I'm sorry. Um, so that's one of the uh, best ways to get shadow banned on Facebook is keywords. And I think that's one of them. Um, so here's another one. My wife asked me if I'd seen my, seen the dog bowl. I said, I never knew he did. <laughs> you know, my, my African brothers, Bismarck, Paul, they're like, man, what's going on here? I don't even understand this. <laughs> Last one. My wife told me to be more in touch with my feminine side. So I crashed the car. And then, and then ignored her all day for no reason. Bismarck, Paul, do women drive in Africa? They do? Uh, okay. Not in the Middle East, I guess. <laughs> so I just want to continue on in the vein that Andrew, Pastor Andrew Kennedy left off last week where we need to bring back the oil. Amen? And the week before that, Pastor Chuck you know, was really uh, declaring over this house that it's not time to quit. So I just want to stay in that vein um, uh, just for the next few minutes. If you could just give me 30 minutes, that's all I need. We'll be out of here before 12. But I want to go to a scripture in the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament, and it's the last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. These are the last two verses that, the, the, that are written in the Old Testament, and you have the 400 years of silence before, before we get to the birth of Jesus. And Malachi 6 says something. How many of you know that the last thing that you say before there's 400 years of silence should be something of significance? It should be something that we cling to, something that, you know what, that we need to pay attention to. So he said this, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So this morning, just for the next few minutes, I just want to talk to you about oil in the family. Father God, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for your grace, your mercy on this house. This house is so significant, it's different, it's other. 
than anything in this community, than anything in this region. And I just thank you for that, that we're set apart. We're set apart that, you know what, that we're raising up kingdom ambassadors in this house to do your work on the earth. And we just thank you for that. We bless you. Bless our time. Speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I love to study and love to read out and love to uh, just to get no, more, more about is uh, the seven mountains of influence. The seven mountains of influence literally shape culture. If we take a look at uh, the, the, uh, the shape of our culture right now, it is because that, the, that these seven mountains have been uh, hijacked, they've been manipulated, They've been perversed. And the seven mountains are family, religion, business, government, education, media, and arts. Those are the seven. I want to talk to you this morning about the family mountain. How I many you know that in this house, Pastor Mark can't get up here and we declare over Pastor Karen if this was not a family. This is a family and we care for when, when one person hurts, I hurt. When, when my victory becomes your victory. Amen. So I've heard it said this. It said that the business mountain or the mountain of economy funds all, six, all seven mountains. It literally funds the other six. It funds the family. It funds religion. It funds government. It funds education. It funds media. And it funds the arts. But how many of you know that the Lord gave me this and I've never heard it Anybody else say this? I've never heard Johnny Enlow say it, Lance Wall now, Bill Johnson, none of those guys. I believe God gave this to me and to, to, as an eye-opener of, you know what? And I've been studying this out and looking at this literally over the last year. And how many of you know that the family mountain, the business mountain provides finances for all other six mountains? But how many of you know that the family mountain provides the personnel, the people for all the mountains? The family mountain provides the people and personnel for all of the mountains of influence. And how many know this? If you can control the economy and the personnel, you can control the language in redefining what things mean, and then you just hope for the best. This is across the board when it comes to redefining what cultural norms have been over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. How many know that there's been some redefining on what it is to be human? What it is to be an employee? What it is to report the news? What it is to, to teach a group of kids in a school? It's all been redefined. So my question, I want to start off with this, because we're going to see if we can answer this question. Or maybe get a little bit closer to answering this question. My question is, how do you and I leverage influence to help shape the family mountain in a way that points to Judeo-Christian values? That's our question. And we're going to see if we can get closer to an answer to that question. But before I do that, the family mountain... And all, the other six as well, if it, it could be traced back to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2. 
God tells the children of Israel that there are seven nations mightier than it and they must be destroyed. And those seven nations, each one of them represent a certain segment of society and they make up one of the seven mountains of influence. Deuteronomy 7.1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are the seven nations greater and mightier than you. And he goes on to say, And the Lord your God delivers them over to you. You shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. God has given us an instruction. It's an Old Testament type and shadow of what our opportunity through the empowering of the Holy Spirit in Jesus of what we're supposed to do in the seven mountains of influence that all of us, maybe not called to all of them, but we're called to one or two or sometimes three of them. Amen? That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to bend our knee. We're not supposed to show any mercy towards them. But we're supposed to um, conquer those mountains, conquer those. They're, it's really a spirit. And the family mountain is, uh, correlates to the Jebusites. The Jebusites were one of the seven nations that the Israelites had to conquer. They had to conquer to go into the promised land. God commanded the Israelites to destroy them completely as we read The word Jebusite means this, a place trodden down, a place trodden down, and speaks to the enemy's strategy of using rejection in the mountain of family. Rejection. Rejection. The the Jebusites were ruthless when it came to a place trodden down, when it came to when they fought their enemies. It's what they did. They displaced families. They displaced children. They displaced husbands. They took the wives. And it became literally known. They became literally known as a place trodden down because they operated under the spirit of rejection. So they represent that adjective. They operate that operate the mountain of and as well. The strategy to create broken families, that's their strategy. Break the family unit. What can we do to break the family unit was their mission. And to produce individuals who have aberrant behavior. But there's a partnership that takes place with the Jebusites. It's a demonic partnership that takes place with the spirit and the God of Baal. Baal was a God worshipped by the Israelites when they went astray. After the death of Gideon, according to the scriptures. Baal was a God that they worshipped when they felt like they were abandoned. When they felt like they were rejected by God because Gideon had passed away. Gideon had died. 
Baal is Satan's illegal principality on the mountain of family, and it represents perversion. To the core, it represents perversion. His name means Lord. So you can literally say that he's the Lord of perversion. The demonic strategy is to use rejection to bring individuals and families under his lordship, eroding, eroding families and society from within. From within. So I'm just teaching this out because we have a lot of new people. I just wanted to, should have said that before. I want to teach this out because we hear these words, the Jebusites, the, the Hivites, and, and a lot of us don't know what they mean. A lot of us don't know what they are. We hear the God of Baal, and a lot of us don't know what is that. Because a lot of us take that for granted because we've been here for so long that we understand and we know the, the Christian lingo or the Bible lingo that's being said up here. So I just wanted to just share what it means to, uh, for the Jebusite spirit and the Baal spirit. The result of the Baal spirit is numerous social and physical ill that spring out of rejection. I don't know how many of you guys know or have dealt with or talked to people that are coming out of or coming to you out of a rejected spirit. Either, the, either an abandonment issue with their family, either they've been rejected by their you know, situation with their wife and that gets on you, whatever it might be. But how many of you know that it's an open door for chaos to come in? Because it includes depression, it's fear, it's sexual deviance, it's addictions, it's anger, violence. And that really that causes the eventual breakdown of the family unit. When I'm talking about the family unit, I'm not just talking about the families, your, your family at your house or whatever, my family, my, my wife and, and I and our three sons, but I'm talking about the family of Christ, the family, the church here. I'm talking about that because it's just as prevalent as it is in our own families. Amen? So in the Old Testament, the worship of Baal involved ritual homosexual activity, cutting oneself, temple prostitution, and child sacrifice to Molech. He was a fertility god and also masqueraded as important for provision and protection, but in reality was a god of perversion. Sexual identity, confusion, self-mutilation, abortions, infanticide, are all evidence of the work of Baal in our society today. He is the God of manipulation. Manipulation. And I just want to say this about manipulation. Manipulation is a form of witchcraft. Because you're trying to take control of a situation that you were never meant to take control of or you were never offered to take control of. And I see this, it's done a lot, and I'm telling you, you guys need to be so careful about this. It's done so much in married, married, married couples because one of them will manipulate the other for this or for that or vice versa. Or kids manipulating their parents for this or that. It's dangerous. 
you open a door. It's witchcraft at its core. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying this just to scare you or, or whatever. It's an open door. You open a door. Manipulation opens a door. It could be uh, innocent. It could be, you know what, tongue-in-cheek, but it opens a door. Married people, please, for the love of God, be careful with manipulation because it will do more harm than whatever it is that you manipulated for that you wanted. So bail strategy, there's four parts to bail strategy. And we have it up on the screen. Just throw those up. So number one is bail strategy is to prevent the face of God from being restored in society. Man, what have we seen over the last 20, 30 years? Is God literally erased from society? And I think that, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it in in just a minute. I think what it is, is that we've become too comfortable, we have bent our knee too easily, and we have not had the sturdy backbone that we once did when it comes to the things of God in society. Number two, prevent humanity from having access to the truth of how God loves us as a father by the way he brings strength to the families. If he can remove that, if he can remove that truth from families, he's got a leg up. He's got a leg up. And I I say this, I've said it several times, that the husband, the husband of the house, if you're a married couple, the husband of the house sets the standard of love for that house. And the wife sets the atmosphere based on that standard of love. It is the Christian motto, model. Because it's the same thing that Jesus does. Jesus sets the standard of love for His church. And in response to that, the church sets the atmosphere. So if Baal can prevent humanity from having the access to that truth. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Super dangerous place to be. Number three, prevent people from knowing that God has never abandoned or rejected us and has unconditional love for us. As I said, there's people that deal with abandonment issues. And they're so real. And we don't need to take that lightly at all. But there is a reality to that that you can become better because we are a family. And I'll say it again. Pastor Mark praying for Pastor Karen. Praying for the West Coast. That reaffirms that God is with us because there is a group of people here on the southwest corner of Lake Okeechobee, that care for one another and care for others outside of this house. Amen? Number four, that prevents people, the spirit of Baal, 
His strategy is to prevent people from experiencing a healed perspective of the goodness of God through the mountain family, mountain of family, which was ultimately meant to be to assure us that we are accepted. That we are accepted. That's another one. Like people's like, man, I just I don't know if I I'm accepted there. I've done so much. I don't know if I can be accepted there because of my past or whatever. And he tries to trip us up because of that. Because we leave an open door to our past. Yeah, our past is our past. I get that. But you know what? There's redemption. The ultimate strategy boils down to convincing a generation that the authorities in life have rejected them and its manipulation at the highest. What it does is it isolates you. Isolation. Isolation is one of the worst things that you can do. That any person can partake in is isolation. Now, you know, there's a difference between solitude and isolation. You know, I tell, I tell my wife, I love my solitude. I really do. I love it. Early in the mornings, my solitude, well, well there, Vanessa, she's in the bed snoring, and I'm just, I'm, I'm in the garage, you know, in my solitude. But there's a difference between that and isolation. There really is. Isolation op- opens the door for chaos to come in. And in that opening, Baal sees that. He sees an opening there. I said this in our growth track. The second law of thermodynamics tells us over and over again that any system in isolation increases its level of chaos. Any system in isolation increases its level of chaos. I was talking to Dr. Carroll the other day about, um, you know, one of the things that I, I love meaningful conversation. I really do. It's one of the things that I absolutely love and and, 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 uh, and I so get that with him. I was talking, we were talking about how cells, our human cells, we have about 37 trillion of them in our body, and all of them are in communication with one another. All of them. They're communicating with each other. Where chaos starts, or really where cancer starts, is when cells go into isolation. When cells start going into isolation, there's something wrong there. All of a sudden, they're not in communication with the other ones, and they start doing, um, they start mutating by themselves, and that's where we get cancer from. Isolation will literally, literally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, all four of them will literally put you in the grave. Slowly or very fast. Isolation is not of God. It is not of God. We can go back to Genesis when it was just Adam on the earth. If we go to Genesis 2, verses 15 through 18. And I love this. I love this. It said, Then the Lord God took the man 
and he put him in the garden to tend and keep to it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's so funny. So funny. He, God tells him that. So how many of you know that he gave the responsibility to Adam? Eve wasn't even on the scene yet. He gave the responsibility to him, and he failed big time. Because on the very next verse, he says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. How many know that that's interesting to me? Because the reality of that, Adam was not alone. He was with God. What does that say to you and I? When God says it is not good for you to be alone, so I'm going to create for you a helper to come alongside you. When God had been there the whole time and they had walked in the cool of the day, But he still says, man, you don't need to be alone. That ain't good. You're isolated. I know I'm there, but you're isolated. There's nothing good about that. And my wife, she preached an incredible message using my notes for Mother's Day. When she researched what that, what is a, well, that's a good question. What is a woman? What, what is a woman as it refers to there in Genesis 2? It's the principle of first mention. It's the first time the word woman or helpmate or helper is mentioned in the Bible. And the word helper is the word ezer, which doesn't simply mean helper. It's deeper than that. Come on, those of you who are married, please listen to me here. It's going to help you. If you really study it out, the word ezer, if you really dive deep into it, referring to women, it means strength alongside. And if you study it, study it out just a little bit further, it implies equal in strength, but opposite in role. Equal in strength but opposite in role. This is an Old Testament type and shadow of what Jesus would be to the church. That Jesus walked in an anointing without measure. And you know what else? who else walks with an anointing without measure? His church. Equal in strength, but opposite in role. So we have a tremendous responsibility when it comes to that. Because it's the first Adam versus the last Adam. The last Adam, Jesus, helper, would be his church and it would be his bride. And when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, we see the dynamic power of what the church really is on the earth. That Because it has the anointing without measure. So what do you do, what do you do when you isolate yourself from a family? 
If you're married and you isolate, how many know you can be married? You can be in, we all can be in the same room and you still be, you can still isolate yourself. When you isolate yourself in a marriage, when you isolate yourself in a family, you got kids, whatever it might be. So I was doing some research and um, biologists in Africa, they were studying zebras in the wild, and they discovered something that flipped all of their assumptions, totally flipped their assumptions on when, they, when, it came, when it comes to zebras. So they watched the zebras. You know, zebras are herd animal, right? So they, they're, they're looking down, and they're riding. They look up, they're riding, and they look up again, and I, they don't know which one they were just looking at. So... One of the things, because of the striped camouflage, they're a herd animal, so it is better for them to be together in the herd because they camouflage and they set themselves apart from the, the predator animals. They're, it's, they're better together than they are just by themselves. So the scientists solved, the biologists solved this problem by dabbing red paint on their, on their hip or whatever uh, or tagging them on the ear, putting an ear tag on them so they would become, uh, so they would be able to identify them. Then they discovered an amazing thing. The predatory lions would kill these painted zebras in disproportionate amounts, numbers. As soon as it became identifiable, the predators could organize their hunt to target the specifically tagged animals. It's there, so there's this old adage, old idea, that lions and predators take down the weakest animal. It's not true. They take down the one that's identifiable. And let me just show you how it happens. Can you just play that 25-second clip real quick? I'm going to show you exactly how it happens. They formulate in groups, so you, you only can see one line, but there's more back there. You know that that zebra didn't survive. It didn't. Even the, you know those dang guys taking that video. They didn't even help that zebra. <laughs> they take down the identifiable ones. It is no different 
on how the enemy works. And, and, I, I, and I look at, like, like zebras as a herd animal, um, and I started thinking, like, man, we, we kind of gather and congregate in herds, too. Like, I was just thinking, like, uh, like gym people, man, they congregate in herds. They really do. They're just, they're a whole different species. You know, gym people, like, man, you don't even want to be around them, you know? But they're, they're their own group. You take certain politicians in their group. You take, from what I've seen, you take uh, college professors. They sort of congregate in their own groups. And as soon as, and as, soon as one of them has a different opinion... Or as soon as, as one of them has a different idea, you know what happens? They become identifiable. And what happens? They take them down. They try to silence them. They try to do whatever they can because they become identifiable. So here at New Harvest Church, you can kind of say that we're a herd group. We're, we're, we're a herd. We stick together. And we do our best because we are a family unit, we do our best that when one goes astray and doesn't believe what we believe anymore, whatever it might be, however you want to phrase it, we do our best to gather them and try to get them back. But you know what? As soon as they become identifiable to the enemy or to Baal, I mean, you know that they're going right after them and they don't have a chance. They do not have a chance. I want to talk to you about the difficult path. Because it is difficult. This path, ain't nothing easy about it. Nothing easy about it at all. Jeremiah 6.16. I started studying this out yesterday, and it's incredible, absolutely incredible, of the content and context that's in there. Jeremiah 6 talks to us about how God has given Jeremiah this prophetic word on what they can do as a nation to um, merge together because at that time, the south and the north were split. And the north was coming for the south. They were coming with everything they had. The south was made up of two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And the north was coming. So God has given this prophetic word to Jeremiah on what the south needs to do so that they're not overtaken by the ten tribes of the north. And this is what he says, and I'm only taking verse 16. And I'm going to break it down for you and give you some context on this. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see. And ask for the old pass where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But this is what they said. They said, we will not walk in it. You know, the Hebrew word for pass there, pass, is linathiboth. Which not only does it mean path or going somewhere on a path or a road. The Semitic root means much more than that. 
it means the idea of a difficult path. A path filled with uncertainties. It's really what it means. So God is telling Jeremiah, ask for the difficult, uncertain paths where the good way is. And the word ways there is the word derekim, which appropriately means crossroads. Crossroads. So it can read like this. Ask for the difficult, uncertain paths where the good crossroad is. My friends, all of us in this room will stand at a crossroad. If you haven't already, I'm sure a lot of us have. All of us will stand at a crossroad. All of us. And there's two ways. There's two roads. There's the easy road where you just go with what society tells you to do. The road that the cultural norms are being redefined. You just kind of just go with the flow. But I'm telling you, God is telling us that there is a crossroad and that there is an uncertain, difficult path. My all-time favorite poem is Robert Frost when he, in his poem, The Road Not Taken. When he says that two roads diverged in the woods And I took the one less traveled. That is our call today. Because when everybody is saying that we need to take this road, we need to look at the one that's less traveled. It it is going to be uncertain. It is going to be difficult. But you know what? At the end of it, There's going to be greater victory for us if we take personal responsibility for that. Because also in that that scripture where it says rest, then you will find rest for your souls. It's the Hebrew word olam. It literally means this. It literally means rest in the midst of turbulence. I'm sorry, it's a Hebrew word, ragah. This rest can be compared, and this is what they compare it to. They compare it to a boxer or a prize fighter. The rest that he gets when the bell rings and he goes to his corner to regroup for the next round. How many of you seen Rocky 1? There's the infamous, the infamous round 14. When Rocky keeps getting back up and Apollo Creed looks at him and he's like, man, this guy is not going down. Apollo Creed was defeated in that round 14 because Rocky refused to give up. That's the rest. It's rest in the midst of turbulence. 
Because life does have its difficulties. Life does have turbulence. Life has all that and more. You know, I, I don't, we don't share this, but the last 18 months for, for me and Vanessa and our family has been super tough, man. Super tough. And you would never know it. Talking to me or talking to her, less than a handful of people even know about that. You know, we always hear like the quick, what's the quick and easy way? What's the quick and easy way to do that? Well, why does it have to be easy? Why does it have to be quick? What happened to doing the hard things? What happened to taking personal responsibility for my growth? Taking personal responsibility for your growth? Whatever happened to that? You know, there's a pioneer in all of us when it comes to when it comes to that. There's a pioneer in all of us when it comes to doing things that your family didn't do, doing things that your neighbors aren't doing. And a lot of times it's taking that road less traveled. You know, I think of my dad. You know, he's 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 going through a major health problems right now and I don't know how much more time he has but my dad way back in 1970 at the age of 23 said he was going to leave Cuba so him and two other of his buddies got into a little raft and they embarked on a 10 day journey to Florida Listen, man, I heard that story growing up as a kid, and I knew something. That same pioneer that's in him, it's in me. You know, it's in all of us. You can't be a born-again believer in today's society and not be a pioneer, not be willing to do things that are outside the cultural norms. And you want to know about family? Family is this. I was telling, I was talking to Micah Thomas the other night, and I said, man, do you, do you, because uh, he's a deputy in Belglade for the sheriff's office. I said, man, do you go by my parents' house much? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm all around. I said, man, can you, if you're ever in that neighborhood, can you just check on them? No questions asked. I'll do it. That's, that's family. Because he understands something here. That if that was if the situation was reversed, absolutely I would do it. And I'll tell you what, if it wasn't for Micah, I wouldn't even be here. Honest truth. I'd never be married to Vanessa. I'd, you, you would never know Henry, uh, Jude, Broman, and, and uh, Maddox. I would have never been here. It was because of Micah that I'm here. But going back to the, the, the situation of meaningful conversations, because it gets you, it gets, it got us through. You know, mine and Vanessa's relationship was strong, man, strong. And if we didn't have that, I don't know, I don't know if we would have made it, man. I, I, I don't know. 
because one of the things with her that I just so love is that we have incredible, meaningful conversations with one another. We really do. And it's probably my favorite thing with her, to do with her. And you might think, well, what about the other thing, you know, with married couples when once the kids go to bed? And <laughs> uh, maybe tie. That's, that's a, maybe it's a tie. But, you know, I mean, you know this, and this is a little bit of marriage advice, and I've heard it from a clinical psychologist. Every marriage needs a minimum of 90 minutes of meaningful conversation per week. That's the bare minimum. you got to do it, man. you got to be willing to do it. And I, and I know things get so busy with life, but you know what? It's so necessary. But, okay, life is difficult. Let's go on to the next. Let's keep going. I found something in Matthew 5. I found it. I knew it was in there, and I found it. Matthew 5, 5. Okay, what is our responsibility? What is our responsibility in this world, in this world, when it comes to the dynamics of family, the dynamics of culture, of all that? And Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the Beatitudes, you really kind of just don't really even look, look at it. You kind of just skip over it. But how many of you know that that totally means something totally different than probably what we've been taught? The scripture, the meek shall inherit the earth. The word meek almost comes across for our modern-day definitions as powerless or wimpy. The original translation should say this. It should literally say this. And Jesus gets it out of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is, is what he's referencing here because that's the reference that he had. So it should say that like this. Those who have swords and know how to use them but keep them or choose them to be sheathed will inherit the world. That's literally what that means. Meek or gentle comes from the word of paras, which in the context means to become angry at sin. It is the active attitude of the Christian towards sin in combating it, instead of a passive, indifferent attitude. That's what that means. But the meek shall inherit the earth. That's what that means. And he gets it out of Psalm 37, 9 through 15. And you just look at the language here that, that David uses. He goes, for evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That's the first time he says it. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots, plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that day, that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are upright and conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. We need oil in our families. 
We need people who will take this, put it in their hearts, and they know, they, and, they know and understand that I got this sword right here, but I'm choosing to keep it sheathed. But don't push me. They pushed Peter a little bit too far, remember? And he took his sword out and cut the guy's ear off. I refuse to bend my knee to a society that cares nothing about you and I. They care nothing about you and I. Only about their agenda. It's Baal masqueraded in care. But it wants your kids. It wants my kids. So what are you going to do? Are you going to bend your knee to that? I don't know, this whole candidate form, I believe God laid it on my heart. I believe God laid that on my heart, this candidate form. Because I'm like, what do you believe? I don't know you. You say all the correct political things. I get your door hangers. You say all the right stuff. But what is morality? Healthy community invites the supernatural. Because then it's not for one individual. It's for how we do life together. It's that secret sauce, that touch of God on the sacrifice that we've made for one another. Because it's His amen to our embracing the sacrifice, care for one another, another human being that attracts the God of the impossible into the environment to take us to a measure we have not yet witnessed. It's John 13, 34. Said that you love one another as I have loved you, and you do love one another. You can't, I'll say this you can't have a design without the designer. In our culture, there's a lot of celebration of design with tremendous effort to ignore the designer. Tremendous effort. I got three minutes left. Pastor Porter, you can come up. Just Pastor Porter's fine. I'm going to have to skip a lot. And I'll just say this. How many know that who you associate with impacts and affects your discernment. You listen to that news enough, it's going to affect you. It's going to affect your discernment. The people that you do life with, they actually have an impact on your perception of truth, whether you believe it or not, consciously or subconsciously. They have an impact on your perception of what truth is. So who are you listening to? It doesn't matter if it's your best friend at work 
or the TV shows that you watch, if you continually expose yourself to things that are untrue, it will affect your ability to discern. Right from wrong, truth from a lie, and the Lord wants us to be very deliberate in who we associate with. Don't get me wrong, I'll serve and minister to anybody. They can be the worst person in the world. It doesn't matter. But the ones that I'm going to allow to speak into my life, to contribute to me, that is a different story. That's a different story. The ones that I'm going to allow to contribute to my life. Proverbs 14.7 says this. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. So we need each other in this place. You need your family. No matter how jacked up they are, I guess. You need them. You need your church family. You really do. We, we, need, we need each other. Pastor Karen, can't, she can't do it. Pastor Chuck, they can't do it without you. She can't get through the battle that she's going through and him as well without you. Impossible. Impossible to do this thing by yourself. Impossible. You know, I was doing some research, and um, I came across the Belgium draft horse. Throw that picture up there, guys. And I don't know, may, maybe Cecil, have you ever seen one in person? You've seen one in person? No? Yeah. You need to tell your dad to buy one. I'm just kidding. The Belgium draft horse. They're by far the strongest pulling animal out of all the horses. One of them, just one horse, one draft horse, can pull about 8,000 pounds, which is like a large SUV, I guess. You know, and the interesting fact is that when two horses pull together, you would think, okay, 8,000 and 8,000 would be 16,000 pounds. Now, they can pull 22,000 pounds together. And then if you get two of them that like kind of train together, they kind of know each other a little bit, they kind of just interact in the field, fields a little bit together, they can pull 32,000 pounds. But the world record is two brothers that grew up from young, young foals, right? Cecil, foals, I, I guess, yeah. Two brothers that grew up. And they set the world record because they knew each other. They did life together. They were able to pull 55,000 pounds together.
We're better together than we are individually, than we are isolated, just doing our own thing. In Matthew 16, when Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the son of Christ. You are Christ, the son of God. And it created a sound wave that echoed back thousands of years. Redemption is here. It let the Jebusite and Baal spirits know that there is a new order on the earth. A higher order. And you and I get to be a part of that as the family of God here on the earth. Ambassadors of His kingdom. Come on, stand to your feet. We're getting ready to go. Come on, let me just pray for you. Father God, I just thank you for a community of believers that believe in your cause, that believe that, you know what? My backbone is getting strengthened and I refuse to bend my knee to a society that cares nothing about me, a society that has its own agenda. I just thank you for them. These group of people that are standing here under the sound of my voice, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you rest upon all of them individually. Rest upon them individually as families. And I thank you for the corporate body because we are the church that has the anointing without measure. And we thank you right now for partnership. And we thank you for community. We thank you for relationships. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. I just speak an open heaven over everybody's individual homes. As we minister in our own homes by just doing life that an open heaven will be revealed an open heaven will be set before us with angelic activity ascending and descending and I just thank you for that Lord I thank you that you're blessing individual homes so that a whole community is affected by you And I just thank you for that. I ask blessings over everybody represented here this morning. I thank you that you give them rest. Empower them for this week. And we just thank you for them. They're blessed going in. They're blessed going out. And I just thank you for them. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. 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 Thank you so much. We'll see you guys on Tuesday for prayer at 6 p.m.